from here to there. We cannot go unless we change and start to grow. Welcome to Lead, Sell, Grow, a show that helps you amplify your leadership, grow your sales, and take your life to the next level, all while being human. Here are your hosts, Eric Konovalov and Harry Spate. So stoked today, man. Anthony Anna Reno is in the house with us today. For those of you who don't know who Anthony is, he is an international speaker on sales, leadership, and personal development. He's a sought-out sales trainer. He's a CEO of a few um, staffing firms, one of them being Solution Staffing uh, in Columbus, Ohio. He's the author of The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, the art of closing and eat their lunch. His blog, the sales blog, is read by over 60,000 people. His weekly newsletter is distributed to over 80,000 people. And before the show started, I'm happy to let you guys know that I'm in the top 80,000 to read his <laughs> blog. And so, yeah, Anthony, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Man, I'm so pumped. I'm so excited to have you on. I've been watching you for a long time. Your YouTube videos, your materials, a huge fan of your blog and your weekly newsletter. Um, let me just kick this off this way. If, you know, a lot of companies right now, we're going through COVID, looks like things are starting to open up. A lot of companies are getting back to work. They're going to have their first in-person sales meeting. If you're the sales manager, what does that meeting look like? That well, first off, I'm already unhappy with the the scenario. So there's never ever a time that you should stop selling, and and if you believe that there's a time to stop selling, you don't understand what sales is. So we have to straighten that out immediately. So my first conversation is going to be explaining to people what sales actually is, and what we actually do. Um, what we do is we go out and we help people solve problems and generate better results than they can produce without us. That's our existence. So our whole existence is about, we go into the world and serve people by helping them get results that they can't get because they don't have the knowledge or they don't have the right solution or they don't look at the problem the way that we would have them look at the problem so they could see possibilities. So we gotta get this straightened out first. So my first conversation is about, let me tell you what sales is and what we do. We go help people get better results. And listen, if you boneheads sitting here, they taking time off because of COVID, believe that it's something else, we have to change that. Because if you can help people get better results when things are good, or even maybe great, then what's your obligation to those same people when things are tough, when they're struggling, when they actually need help? You can't withhold your help from people who need your help. So I actually had to deal with this question maybe for the first month of COVID. So for the first month of COVID, all the emails coming in were, should I stop selling? And it's like, no, you can't stop selling. People actually need you to help them. And where we are right now is, you know, a lot of people are now at acceptance. So they've, they've recognized like, this is a thing. It's going to go on for some period of time. It's not the new normal. It's a temporary abnormal. So I don't want people to get hung up on that kind of idea. But, but the truth of the matter is, uh, this is going to end and to recover your business, the only thing that you can do is help other people recover their business. So what are you doing sitting in a meeting like this when you should be outside meeting with people, helping them recover their business? Because that's what we do in good times and in bad times. We go and help people get better results. 
So if you're not doing that right now, you need to just get on this like right away. Like you should be in motion all the time. You should be having conversations with your existing clients, with your past clients, with your dream clients. People need help right now. So why on earth would you ever deprive them of that help if you could give it to them? Wow. Yeah, your answer is awesome. Um, I think a lot of people, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think your audience is a little more vast than ours. Um, but don't a lot of people look at selling as just selling and not necessarily helping, whereas selling through this whole cycle, which I'm sure both Eric and I believe in that, but we don't view selling as vomiting our product all over people and wondering why they're not buying if they're, uh, you know, they're not sure what their next three months looks like or something along those lines. So could you help us understand that a little bit? Um, I, I've written this in a couple books now, but selling isn't something that you do to someone. It's something that you do for someone and with someone to benefit them. So if, if you get that part wrong at the beginning, you don't really understand where we are in the world. So I, the first book I wrote, uh, I handed it into the publisher that asked me for the book. They wanted to publish a book with me. So I gave them a book and they called me and said, uh, we hate your book. I'm like, well, this is going well so far. Uh, I'm not you sure where buy we're going a million of them? <laughs> and, uh, and the, the acquisition editor said, um, your book starts with self-discipline. Everybody hates that. So why would you start a book on self, like with self-discipline? And then what on earth is a caring chapter doing in a book on sales? Like, why would you have caring at the beginning of a book on sales? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And I remember saying to him, um, I said, friend, you've never sold before, have you? <laughs> and he said, no, I've not. And I said, it's, it's an other-oriented endeavor. It's yeah. about helping the other person. You don't have to worry about selling anything. You have to worry about can you help them and then help them with thinking through a problem and solving the problem and getting their team on board and executing new solutions. I mean, it's all about helping the other person. Absolutely. And, and he said, why don't you just let us pick out some of your blog posts and we'll cobble together a book out of it. And, <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't think it's going to work that way. Like I, I already... I've got 17 chapters and uh, this is the book I'm going to produce. Yeah. And uh, fortunately I decided to self publish. So I was, I hired an editor. Uh, we edited the book together. And then two weeks before I was ready to publish the book portfolio reached out to me and said, why haven't you written a book? And I said, well, I have, this is over Twitter. And mm -hmm. they said, well, we can't find it. And I'm like, well, I'm not publishing it until January. And they said, um, well, they told me like, you've done everything wrong so far. <laughs> and I said, this, all these conversations I have with publishers are really interesting. You know, like it's all bad news every time. Right. Wow. And, and then I said, listen, you have a lot of opinions. So I said, why don't you read the book? Tell me what you think I need to change. And we'll talk again when I write my next book. And uh, they read the book and they got it immediately. Like, wait, yeah. it's a competency model disguised as a success book. And I'm like, right, that's right. So you get it. And then fortunately, we were able to publish it with somebody that gets it. You know, it is an other-oriented endeavor. And they recognize what I was trying to say right out of the gate. Yeah. So it's good to have a partner that gets you. It's so true. I mean, uh, one of my philosophies over the years is looking at sales is like, how do I serve the client, right? And then, you you know, you, you try to teach that to people that don't get it. It's just, uh, you might as well be speaking a foreign language, it seems. 
It is foreign to a lot of people. And I, I think part of it is um, if you don't really have it in here, like, I mean, mm -hmm. if you, if you don't have the knowledge, the confidence, the insight, if you don't have all that, then the first thing that you want to do is go, let me tell you about my company. We've been yeah. in business for 122 years. Let me tell you the story about the CEO. He came over here, uh, you know, like, and you, you go into like anything other than why you should change. So it, and right. it's because they don't have anything. So then it's like the next best interesting thing to talk about is our product is so good. It's like no one else's product. I mean, I know you get paper, but our paper's way better than their paper. Like so then you're like, really? It's, oh, okay, so they, they just start in the wrong place. And if you don't know that, you don't know it. And, and then once you see it and you recognize, I mean, I, I happened to go on a call with um, a manager when I was young and he didn't say anything on calls. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he, he almost didn't talk at all. Yeah. And if you were to say anything, he would say like, hmm, <laughs> that's interesting. Share a little bit more. And then they, yeah. they just keep talking. And then we would sign a contract and walk out and I'm like, that's like superpower, right? He's so yeah. interested in the other person. They talk the whole time and they're like, I really like you guys. Right. It's a Dale Carnegie thing. Didn't say anything about us. Yeah. Doesn't, they don't know anything, but they know right. they like you. Yes. That person is so fascinating. And that all the person did was like, yeah. tell me more. Right? <laughs> yeah. You're interested in me. That's yeah. the best part. My favorite topic. Yeah. That's the key. No one there's, you know, in the whole world, everybody's, mostly interested in themselves. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about what I did this weekend. Hey, how was your weekend? Well, let me tell you what I did this weekend. <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a special skill. So you worked with thousands and tens of thousands of salespeople. You were speaking on international stages. In your experience, what do you think separates the, the top sales performers, those one percenters from everybody else that's, that may be in the same role? This is a hard one for, for people to understand. And, and it means that it's going to take you longer than you want it to. So, so this is the hard thing The the differentiators right now are confidence, business acumen, what I would call situational knowledge, situational knowledge is I've seen this pattern enough times that I can tell you that this answer is better than that answer. Because if you did it this way, it would be wrong for you, even though your friend said that they did it that way and it worked great for them, but it won't for you because these other factors. So it's business acumen, it's situational knowledge, it's the confidence to dispense your counsel and your advice and to have a strong perspective and a point of view, and then to control the process. So the people who are, are really good at this are really, really good at it. And it's very hard for other people to recognize what they're doing. So they, they don't recognize it because, you know, if I have a chance to talk to young salespeople, the, the first thing I'll tell them is start listening to CNBC every day. Just listen. Like you're on the treadmill, you're lifting weights, whatever you're doing. Listen, because you don't, you're not a business person. You think you're selling something, but you have to be a business person. And if you want to be consultative, you know, people get consultative very, very wrong. They, they misunderstand it. They're like, well, I'm not going to be pushy. I'm not going to be a high pressure salesperson. I'm going to ask really good questions. That's all really good. It's all, all good, Johnny. I love that, but it's wrong. So what makes you consultative is telling other people how to better run their business. That's what consultative means. I'm going to tell you the right answer because I know it and you don't know it. And that's the value that they create. 
So if you're young, you got to start getting on the on-ramp there and figure out how to get your trajectory, you know, steep as you can get it. If you listen to CNBC and you hang around better reps and you get to hear how the conversations go, you do a lot better, a lot faster. But you have to understand it's not about the product. It's not about your company. It's not about you. It's about can you have the conversations that you need to have to create this compelling change for someone and then to have the confidence to be able to dole out your, your insights and your perspective and have people take it seriously. So you got to do some work. So the third book, Eat Their Lunch, the first part of that where I, I lay out the four levels of value, when people read it, they don't know it and they see it for the first time and they're like, I'm entering from the left and I should be entering from the right. I'm starting with my company and my product and I should be starting with how do you get a better result than the result you're getting now? And it's just where you're going to start. If you have been selling for a long time and you know your product, you know your company, you know your competitors, you've seen all the situations, you go right to what's the root cause of this problem? I mean, you're, you're going to get there really fast because you've seen the pattern. Even if your client has to do a little, like the, a lot of the discovery when you're at that level, the discovery is for the client. Like you, you've already seen the pattern, you know what the answer is, but you still have to go through the motions because they have to say it out loud and come to some of the recognition on their own. And so people that are really good at this, they can get that done. And it looks like, it looks like voodoo or black magic. Like they're guiding them through this conversation. Oh my gosh, that's so good. I, I thought of two questions as you were speaking because one is, I think, one, do you believe it's a sales leadership issue? Because when, you know, a new college graduate gets out and gets into a B2B sales job, they are given a brochure about the company. They are given a brochure about everything they sell. And everything on that website is starts off with about us, how long we've been in business and everything like that. So who do you, how do you start shifting that mindset? A lot of sales leaders don't know why their reps aren't selling as well as they could be. And, and they don't know, and they don't have the, like the, the first book, the only sales guide is a competency model. And, and if I would have called the book, like, here's a competency model, people would have been like, I don't want a competency model, but you need one. You need all the character traits. And at the same time, you need all the skills. And that's the first book. Jack Malcolm wrote a book on uh, business acumen and uh, his book's a really good book, but I think mine's the first competency model that included uh, business acumen, change management, leadership as the skills that you see being executed by B2B salespeople right now. That's super Back important. Thereof. Yeah. Right. And the second thing you said, it gets missed so much by so many salespeople at the proposal stage. They, they're doing a proposal, they meet with the client and then skip a few steps. Next step is a proposal. They get super excited. And the client has never expressed what their actual problem is. And then they lose. And then they lose. Yeah. So do you have a technique that you teach for how do salespeople who are super pumped, motivated, excited about this opportunity, they have their own blind spots on, what's the one thing that they can do to ensure that they don't miss that crucial step? Um, I'm, I'm going to just keep pointing at books because I have to keep writing this stuff down. So the, the second book, The Lost Art of Closing, is a, a framework for controlling the process and then making sure you have all the conversations you need to have. So, so that means 
I'm going to have a commitment for time. I'm going to have a commitment to explore what change might look like. I'm going to have a commitment to see if you really are serious about changing. And then if you are, then I'm going to have a commitment to explore what that looks like and a commitment to build consensus with your team. And then a commitment to talk about the investment. If I didn't already do it sooner, sooner or earlier, depending on if I have a high price or not, I might do it very early to make sure I disqualify anybody who faints or passes out when I disclose the price. And then I'm going to review it with them. I'm not handing anybody a proposal that they can't say yes to. And then I'm going to ask if I can resolve all their concerns. And then I'm going to ask for the deal. So it's when you start seeing people skip some of those. Like they already told me what their problem was. I'm going to give them the proposal and then see what happens. It's like, well, you just skipped about five or six conversations you probably need to have in a B2B sale. And the reason you lost is because they, they're not there with you. What happens is we get disconnected. So like I'm way up here. I already know the answer. So they said, I have this problem. Like, Good. I already know the answer. They're like, I'm still back here. Yep. You got to go back and try to go like that if you can do it. You know, so you, you try to control that. So you make sure that they get the information that they need, that they've got an understanding of what's going on and why, and that they're bought in and they're going to execute. So that, that's what you're really trying to do. And you're fighting your own ego because that takes, that takes a step back to realize that you can't see the picture when you're inside the frame, that you may right. not see it all. And to say, hey, what did I miss? What am I missing here? Talk to the sales manager. Talk to your peers. A lot of salespeople miss opportunities that they should not miss because they miss those steps. If you, if you were, I mean, when, as soon as somebody sees the commitments and I start going back over deals and say, let's talk about why you lost this one and then just figure out what you skipped. And then, you know, uh, in, invariably it starts with change. Like at some point I have to say, Eric, listen, if this is a problem for you and you've said it is, and it, if it's worth solving, are we going to be able to get the investment and are we going to be able to get consensus from your team? And does it make sense for us to move forward and do this now? Or is there something else that's more important to you? And, and they're like, what if they say, no, it's not a time for us to do it. Well, then, you know, it's not time for you to do it. Like you're going to have to figure out what else you can do, but if, if they can't do it, they can't do it, but you have to check. And then if they say yes, then probably in a complex B2B sale, they didn't get consensus. I mean, they, they worked with one person and they thought, well, that person said they were going to present it to the board. And you're mm -hmm. like, they're, they're not, they can't do that. I mean, they're, that they're not going to succeed. Right. Sorry. That whole dealing with one person just drives me nuts. Um, you know, so there's the best relationship that a salesperson may have in an account. They love the relationship and then they're paranoid about going around that person, getting other people involved. Well, you, you need to have that other person get people involved. I mean, so you, you actually have to, you don't want to go around them. You want them to do the work. It's their deal. If they're shepherding this deal, then they got to do the work. So you have to be able to say to them like, Harry, listen, um, can I share with you what tends to happen when we don't bring in the other stakeholders? And then you, you say yes, because I asked you a question if I could sure, share absolutely. and you have to say yes. And yes. then I get to say, normally we end up getting so far in front of them that by the time they catch on to what's going on, they're already resistant. They've been left out of the conversation and they're going to work against you. Even if you buy it, they're going to work against the execution. Who do we need to bring in and how do we get them into this conversation? And, and how soon can we do that? That, like is, so, that I'm, is so awesome. 
I'm going to teach you how to, to manage your own deal because they don't know. They don't know that they're going to lose because they didn't do this. Right. So they, they think if I sneak it through, it'll get through. It won't get through. Yeah. But they, I mean, isn't it true that they, uh, the quote unquote decision maker feels frequently that they know it all, that they are the power player. Um, and then you have to walk like you're on uh, eggshells with those people at times. But I just love that approach. You got to be a diplomat. Yeah. I mean, you've got to say like, Harry, I know that everything I'm about to say, you already know. And you're probably two steps ahead of me, but I just want to make sure that we don't skip this. And then I'm, I'm not going to pretend like you don't know anything. Right. I'm trying to get you on my team and I need you to do some work. Yeah. Okay, That's a great approach. So many salespeople don't do that. Why do you think that is? They don't know. Uh, they don't have the language. <laughs> They've not had a, a good mentor. Like we're ruining a whole generation of salespeople right now. We sent them home to work by themselves. How do you learn how to sell by yourself? YouTube. <laughs> yeah, YouTube. <laughs> listen to you, exactly. Yeah, you, watching you, Anthony Anarino videos on YouTube. I'd rather listen to you than listen to me, that's for sure. <laughs> you, you, but like, if you're in a bullpen and you're around right. other salespeople and you're, you're in the conversations, you get better way faster. Yes. And, and now we're like, nope, they're going to be fine working from home. No, they're not. They're just not. They're going to need more help. We're social creatures. So how are you shifting your business? I mean, you do quite, you've done quite a bit remotely as well, right? Before the COVID stuff started, or were you always on site for sales I've, training? I've, I've done, um, I mean, I've been on an airplane every, every week for years, but wow. um, I've not been on an airplane since March 5th. And I'm not on an airplane. Well, I'm on an airplane to go to Hilton Head, but that's not a gig. That's a family trip. But I, I'm, I'm usually on an airplane and going to see people face to face. And I think I'll be doing that again um, far earlier than most people suspect. I, I know I'm, I'm going to be speaking in September and, uh, and maybe twice. And then I have other things coming on now. So it's coming back. Fantastic. And, yeah. So Where are you speaking in September? Nashville. Okay. Uh, for Dave Ramsey's group. And then I have a potential gig in Vegas. It's a big gig though. So it'd be a thousand people if they can get that in. I think Vegas seems to be wide open. So they might be like a thousand. Have at it. Good luck. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, that's great. Harry, aren't you going to Dave Ramsey's thing? I think you're I'm, I'm actually going uh, July. To Orlando in July. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're going to see Jeb Blunt there for that one, I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it's an ultra leadership one. I'm not right. Sure. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and I think Jeb's going July, and I think I've got September. Okay. I didn't oh, know that's that. so... Yeah, what a great group. Yeah. Have you been part of that Ramsey group for a while, or is this a new thing for you? No, it'll be the first time. Yeah, okay. That is very neat. So, Anthony, leadership, right? We, we talk about sales, leadership, growing here. A lot of sales companies, what they do is they take their best salesperson and they turn him into a sales manager thinking he or she can make more of them, right? In your, in your opinion, especially uh, being somebody who staffs people, what do you think of that and how can they do it better? I mean, there's, there are plenty of salespeople that could become a leader. Uh, and there are, there's, it's sort of like, um, 
it's the Super Bowl. Um, let's call it a year ago, two years ago. And uh, you need somebody to win the game for the Patriots. Do you put in Bill Belichick or do you let Tom Brady go ahead and handle the ball? You know, like, like the, it's a different set of skills, right? You send so, in the Ravens. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> you hope, you hope for that. The, um, yes, look at that. The, um, the person that's a great leader may not be the best salesperson, but they might be the person that can see things that other people can't see and coach people and help them see something in themselves that they haven't seen yet and, and activate that and become the, the person that can perform the way that this other person can see that they can't yet recognize. So there, there's different skills that you're looking for. So do they need to understand the sales process, how to have the conversation? Yes. Do they have to be the best at it? Not necessarily. I, 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 would, I would venture a guess that any coach in the NFL – um, was not the best player in whatever in whatever um, role they played on the football field, but they were the person that understood the game better than anyone else, and they could see what other people couldn't see. And so that that's the biggest part of this: is could you can you lead others? Will they follow you? Do you have the credibility? Can you help other people improve their performance? So all of those things matter. So I think if you if you decide I'm going to take the best rep, then you're going to have a super closer. And, and there, there's nothing wrong with having a super closer, to be honest with you. Sometimes at the, the, the place that you are uh, on a team, like maybe you need a super closer. You need some people to beat the bushes and let somebody go in and, and handle it because you need the revenue right now. Longer term, though, you may be making the wrong choice because you may need somebody that can lead a team over a longer period of time. It's all, it's all contextual. Like yeah, what's wow. the context of the question? That is so That's really awesome. Good. I, I was thinking back uh, years ago, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., and I used to, uh, you know, I came from in an industry where the managers were closers, right? Reps were all brand new. They bring deals in or opportunities in. Managers would make the call or go out there, put the hammer down, make it happen. I was not that guy, right? I was always coaching in the background. You know, I periodically periodically make a call to a client to see where they were in the process and so forth. But I always ask my sales reps, who is the better salesperson? You that's out there every day or the client who is buying this once every five years. Right. That's and I right. think you said something like that. I was watching one of your videos or a podcast or something. We're dealing with the ERP. Right. And yeah. where you mentioned, uh, can you explain that a little bit? I just thought that was such a great line because yeah, I think, I mean, that. <laughs> that's, that's the right way to think about this. So if I sell something every day and I've got hundreds of clients and my company's got thousands of clients, we have to know how to get that result better than you do. And ERP is just a great example because you know, you're going to buy it once if you're lucky twice, if you're unlucky and you're not going to be happy about the second time because it's, uh, it's open heart surgery, brain surgery, a colonoscopy, and a root canal. I mean, like everything is getting torn apart all at the same time. And so no one wants to do it. But, but you know way more because you, you've seen, and this is, this is the situational knowledge. I've seen this. For you, this is better than that. Why? Well, because when we do it this way and this is true, this is bad for you. When we do it this way and this is true, it's good for you. 
but you don't know that until you know it. And so you're going to give people a, a solution based on what you know, and they can't know that because they've not had the experiences. And, and my own personal development as a sales leader, I closed every million dollar deal for my team. Mm-hmm. Anything over a million, I closed it until they finally cornered me. Um, I think it was like the Magna Carta or something, you know, just the, the anniversary the last couple of days, they cornered me and said, uh, we don't need you to close any deals. And I'm like, nope, I'm the one that closes deals. I'm like, we don't need you to close deals. You, you're, you're no help at all. We've got this. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I live to close big deals. That was fun. You know, it's the best part. But they didn't need me. I mean, and I, I developed them well enough that they didn't need me anymore. I mean, that's your ultimate goal. Right. Even if you're the super closer, your ultimate goal is that you create a bunch of value creators that can close deals on their own. Otherwise, your job is hard. Yeah. Your job's hard if you have a bunch of dependents that can't do their job by themselves. The more you develop them into being independent actors, the, the better your life is. I mean, it's so much easier when everybody knows how to go out and win, well, first create deals and then win those deals. Yeah, absolutely. You wow. look at uh, some of these coaches just in the NFL analogy that you mentioned, you, you see their coaching lineage, right? Where you, their players, not only their players becoming coaches, but their coaches becoming, you know, offensive coordinators or head coaches oh, yeah. and right. It's the same deal, right? It just spreads around a little bit and then your business grows and, you know, it's great for the ego. I loved closing deals in a sense that is great for my ego, but what was better for the company is to get a bunch of people that can go close the deals. And then you, you have to shift your thinking to celebrating other people's wins. Exactly. It's not your win anymore, right? but it's You're still your win, right? Yeah. Still your win, even though it's their win, but that's what you yep. want. Yeah, exactly. Your that's ego right. is not your amigo. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Absolutely. Anthony, let, so can we back up a little bit? How did you even get involved with this? I mean, I read your bio, you went to law school, you went to Harvard. I mean, that's, that's a lot. (laughs) You're, you're pretty, you're a pretty sophisticated, educated man. Are you, did you get your uh, law degree? Yeah, sure. Did you ever, did you ever practice law? No, I put the degree in the closet over there. Nice. That's right in there and that behind that door. Uh, no, I I was uh, 25 and I was in Los Angeles running a hair metal band and uh, working and I had a, somebody forced me into outside sales. So I was doing that and um, I had a grand mal seizure walking up the steps to my Brentwood apartment one day in October 1992. And then I was taken to UCLA. Actually, I was driven by my neighbor because I wouldn't go with the paramedics. I'm so pigheaded. Mm. And uh, I, I ended up having a brain surgery. So I have this giant scar right here on the right side of my head where I had what was called an arterial venous malformation. So I had a group of arteries and veins that grew into a big knot. It was right here and it was pushing on my brain. And uh, I not only had to have the knot removed, but I, I also had to have the damaged brain removed. So I had a relatively good sized piece of my right temporal Jeez. lobe removed when I was 25 years old. So um, after that, I, I healed for about 90 days. I was in the hospital for six days. I was home for about 90 days and there was nothing to do. I learned how to play guitar over that period of time because I had guitar players that would come over and sit with me for hours and I ended up being able to play the guitar. 
And then um, I decided that um, my brain was on fire. And I, I went to my neurologist and I'm like, I'm making new neural connections and I'm reading a book a day. And, and uh, I said, I, I don't know what's happened, but I think my brain is you know, trying to recover somehow. Oh my goodness. And, and he said, um, there's absolutely no evidence of that. And you're just freaking out because we cut a piece of your brain off. <laughs> and I said, okay. Uh, but then I said, I'm going to go to college. So I started college when I was 26. I did a four-year degree in three years. I went straight through, taking like 18 credit hours, reading everything I could read. And uh, I had a, a, an advisor that said, you should take the LSAT. And I said, uh, I will. I said, I just need to know what that is. <laughs> and he said, it's the law school entrance exam. He goes, I think you'd be good at it. And uh, I stayed up until two o'clock in the morning watching Felix Trinidad fight Ike Corte uh, in the, for the welterweight championship uh, unifying the belt. And I showed up and took the LSAT. And I was a little slow on the first group. I mean, the first, the first exercise you have to do. So I was a little bit behind. And uh, you can get a, a maximum score of 170. I got a 161. And, uh, and I had a 3.93 grade point average because I started college when I was 26. So it was, I'm, I'm already pretty good settled down shape to go to college. And I got the uh, Dean's Academic Scholarship to law school. So I went to law school with no real intention of ever being an attorney. I just, I, I would, I was taking the education cause they were giving it to me for free. And I thought, well, it can't hurt uh, to learn how to think that way. Right. And it, it is really good thinking. I mean, you, yes. you have to, you have to be able to argue your opponent's side as well as you argue your own. Perfect so, for sales, right? Oh yeah. So you, yeah. you, you have to get out of the, I'm going to make my argument. Yeah. You've got to be able to make both arguments and right. in, in classrooms, if you argue, somebody will ask you to argue the other side. Like, and you have to be able as good at that side, which is why everybody hates lawyers, right? right. <laughs> That's one of the reasons. So then uh, I had a, the CEO of a family business that said, um, we want you to go to Harvard. So then I did that. So I was, I was in school. Harvard was a back and forth program, but it was nine years, nine years straight. Well, and by that time, family, kids, and school? Best decision we ever made is to have three babies uh, while I was in law school. I mean, because you have a lot of extra time going into night school and working 50 hours. It's, it's very, very good planning. We call that sarcasm where I come from. My, yeah, my wife said, look, it takes people a long time to have babies. You got to try for years. And it was like, no, not so much. They Not really with your fast. brain that's on fire. You're making babies really quick, right? <laughs> I always single try every time. So oh my, goodness. my dad yeah, had six children. So there's that. Yeah. In the Marine Corps, we call that one shot, one kill. So it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Something add, like that. So what were, you, what, were you, what were you working on for 50-hour weeks while you were going staffing. through law school? That was staffing. What was your role in a staffing uh, company? At that time, uh, sales manager, VP, so you, probably VP of sales by that time. So I talk to salespeople nowadays and I'm like trying to get them into personal development, start reading at least a book a quarter. <laughs> right? 
And the excuse is I don't have time. It's so amazing to hear what you're saying right now. Um, but would you consider yourself a, a big guy on self-management or time management? Oh, yeah. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that and what, where that yeah, started? Yeah, that'll, that'll be one of the next couple books I write is just the principles for actually being productive. Because it's not so much time management. It's, it's what do you do with that time that's productive. So yeah, I have a lot of, um, I've written a lot of content. I've uh, hired a guy on my sales team who in his previous company took your training. And he said, I block off 90 minute time blocks and I just turn everything off and I make cold calls. Yeah. And I do that twice a day. <laughs> like, that's really cool. I, I, that is as good of a recipe as you need. I mean, if you take 90 minutes and I, I had this conversation with somebody um, yesterday. If you take 90 minutes three times a day and you just have three 90-minute blocks, that sounds like a lot. It's four and a half hours out of an eight-hour day. So you have three and a half hours to answer your email, respond to client stuff, deal with whatever you have to internally. I mean, you have, you have three and a half hours for that. But if you spent four and a half hours on two things, Opportunity creation, prospecting, uh, or nurturing, or running some sort of a sequence. And, and then you took another 90 and did that, like this gentleman that you're talking about. And then you took one 90 minute just to follow up on every single deal and make sure that you've checked everything. You've given yourself four and a half of real sales time. You're either with a client or you're doing something about getting in front of them. You still have three and a half hours you can give away to your company. That seems fair to me. I think it seems fair. Like I get four and a half to be completely selfish, not talk to anybody, don't have my email open, not answering the phone, just doing the work that actually creates sales. And then I'll give you three and a half. And I think that that's as fair a deal as you could ever ask for. You know, and if, if, if you can't have two 90 minute blocks, to do prospecting, what are you? What do you think sales is? I mean, what the hard part's the opportunity creation. Capture's not hard. Capture's you need a good theory about it, but capture's way easier than creation. Everybody's complaining about how hard it is to create deals because they don't start with level four. They start with let me tell you about my company. And it's like, well, I'm not trying to replace the company I have right now. So that that's the first hurdle for people. But opportunity creation comes first. You never close a deal that you didn't open. So you need to spend an inordinate amount of time opening. And people that do that succeed all the time. And people think, like, why are they so good at it? They're not. They're not they may, I'm sure they're good at it, but they're not particularly good or, or special in any way. They just do the job. And, and that tends to be enough for most people. Wow. If we, if this was the whole podcast, like if we only had 10 minutes with you and that's what you shared, that's such tremendous value that, I, I mean, it's, it's a lot easier said than done because it does take that disgusting thing called discipline. Right. Right. Well, you were in the Marines, so you, you know, like discipline's not a choice, right? You, that's you right. found out like it wasn't going to be up to you whether or not you were disciplined. That's right. Because you're going to be. I'm going right. to be. But or not, you know, they're not in the Marines. No, but they like discipline is something. And so the Marines force that on you. 
And I, I wish I, I would have been a great Marine. I mean, I, I would have loved that. I was a street kid. So I was told never to go into the military because my dad came from the Vietnam era, mm. you know, so he was like, nope, you never joined the military. And, and the world changed, you know, dramatically after, you know, the nineties. So uh, I would have been, I would have done really well with somebody teaching me that discipline. I got it later on and then I got it very strong. So I have a very, very strong self-discipline and will, but that's, that's the key to success in just about anything. Can you will yourself to do the work? And if you can, you're going to succeed over time. I mean, and, where, and that's it. Where'd your discipline come from? Uh, the, the single greatest attribute that you could have if you want to be successful um, and I do, and I, I care about it is hunger. So that, that's it. That's the, that is the thing that if you, if you have the hunger, then you have to put the work in and it's the hunger that makes the discipline easy. So if you're so, hungry, then discipline comes real easy. I love it. So how do you personally define success? How do you know when you've been successful? Um, so for me, there's not like this is uh, if you're aware of Simon Sinek's new book of like the infinite game, uh, uh, everything is just a, a little bit in front of the thing that that I like. It's a little bit in front of the thing that I already did. So there's no end. Success is are you happy doing what you're doing? Is it making a difference in the world? Is it in line with your your purpose and meaning? And if all those things are true, I mean, you can you can count, you can keep score with money if you want to, but that, that's not the real way to measure it. Right. It's not the real way right. to measure it. Cause you don't get to take any of that with you. No, you don't. I checked. There's pyramids <laughs> in Egypt. The, the, the Pharaohs were buried with all of their riches. And if you go in, the riches are still in there. Like they, they didn't go anywhere. So that can't be, that can't be the most important thing. That's so, good. Are you still reading a book a day? No, I read about a book a week, but right now I'm, I'm trying to read big books. So uh, I'm not even able to read one in a week. I'm reading uh, Napoleon, A Life by Andrew Roberts. It's 800 pages. So it's a big oh, wow. book. It's not only it's a, no a big book. There's some pictures. <laughs> yeah, there's pictures in it. But it, it's, uh, it's a big book. And I, I like things that are, are fairly complete. And so it's one of those, like, it's a single volume. People have written like the 24 volume histories of Napoleon, but this is just a single one, but it's a big book. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm still at about a book a week. Okay. But I buy many, many more than that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Tell us about consistency. Cause when I look at Anthony and Arino, the one word that I would describe you as is consistent. Consistently bad or consistently good or just consistent. Consistently <laughs> consistent. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes, no, I haven't, um, haven't had anything of yours. And I mean the, like clockwork on Sundays, I know an email is coming for me. Right. So that's, that's probably where I get that from every single week I get an email and, and um, every day I write a post. So I, I, I've written right. a post for, for 10 years, um, every single day. So that, that's consistency. Mm -hmm. That's consistency. And, yeah. And when I'm did you commit to that? 
December 28th, 2009. Jeez. Because I never, I never make New Year's resolutions. They're too easy to break. Like you, you, you pick something. So I always start beforehand so I don't have the January 1 thing. So December 28th was the day. <laughs> and all right. So what was the, did you have it? Like, did you keep the end in mind? Like, did you know what it was going to turn into? Talk to us. Can you take us back to that day? I, it was actually the 27th when I told my wife that I'm, I said, I'm not waking up at 630. I'm getting up at five. I'm going to spend the first hour and a half writing a blog post. I'm going to publish a blog post every single day for as, probably the rest of my life. And within a year, I'm going to be keynoting sales conferences. And then I told her how much I was going to charge. And she's like, I really have no idea what you're saying, but I love you. And uh, it all sounds good to me. So you know, I support you. And that was it. And then wow. uh, I told her within a year I'd be speaking. And uh, 10 months later, I got my first gig. Did you have any speaking engagement? Did anybody know who you were before that? No. No. So you were a guy who at this point, you're running a staffing agency. Mm -hmm. And you just and you chose to write on uh, sales. I, I, sales? Chose, I, I chose to write what I know. Got it. Like I, I, I'm not a researcher. So there, there are a lot of people that write books and they go out and they research something and then they write a book about it. I don't do that. Like I, I'm not a Mal Malcolm Gladwell. I only wrote about, write about the things that I know about and that I've experienced and that I care about. So I don't, I don't, I'm not a researcher. So I, I wrote what I knew and yeah. I still write what I know. How do you get the content every day? Are there days where you just get up and you're like, I, would, I don't know what to write. <laughs> no, no, I have a list of things. I, I write down everything that comes into my mind. And I Where? Say, uh, first on Evernote. And then I, I found a program called Ulysses that I started to write in. And now uh, another software called Rome Research. And so I'm, I'm now keeping it in Rome for a whole bunch of reasons, but mostly because... Uh, it's the first software that's got true bi-directional links. So if I were to put brackets around a word, it will show me everything else in my writing where that word appears. And so it's all linked together. So in a, it's, a, it's a way to, um, to find the connections between your ideas. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. I'm, I'm pulling up, this is a folder. And in this folder, sorry, I just got to show off a little bit. I don't get a chance to talk to somebody like you every day. So like this page has the word risk on it. And let's see, this page has the word purpose on it. And what this is, I gave my niece almost, I don't know, 15, 20 books that I've read at that time. And I paid her 400 bucks to go through and take out all the highlighted stuff yeah, and type it up. And that is my content kind of ideas, you know, my, my notes to jot some ideas. So I love hearing you say that. And I'm so fascinated by just your discipline. Like everything you say is so simple to do, but it's hard. <laughs> right. It's not easy, it's, but it's simple. I get up at five. I write. I have 390 blocks of time where I'm either in front of a customer doing something to get a new customer or working on bringing a customer in. And then the rest of the time I have to do whatever I want. 
Yeah, it's uh, there's not any great mysteries. I mean, this stuff is all known. The hard part is willing yourself to do it, which is why I started a book with self-discipline. Because if, if you can't will yourself to do it, no one else can will you to do it. Like you have to want something, but most people don't know what they want. There's better, um, there's better ways for you to keep your notes now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there, there's, there's a lot of things that could improve your process there. Um, there's, if you read on Kindle. I don't. I know I should. No, not necessarily. I, I read, I read, listen, use Kindle hardcover. I have, a, and if I really read a book, I, I buy all three. But there, the Kindle will, if you highlight anything, you can go out to your note page and just pull the notes down yourself. So that's nice. Uh, the other thing is there, there's an app called Readwise for your phone. And mm-hmm. you can just take a picture of the page and then highlight it. And Readwise will pull out your quotes for you. So you don't have to, so you don't have to have somebody type them for you. I love it. So, so you're just yeah. putting my little niece out of work. I see how you are. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's getting her work outsourced to uh, an app. There right. you go. Readwise, I'm going to get it. Artificial you're, you're, you're teaching her how the world works. Like if you can't create greater value than just transcribing, you're not going to survive very long. So up your game, niece. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, this is a few years old and I have not, you know, since she went and like internship um, at the parliament in the UK somehow, I don't even know how she got her brilliant butt over there, but it was a great experience for her. She's really something else. Probably because she read all these notes that I was highlighting. Yeah, that's it. I think that's, that's, that was a part of my madness is to get her little eyes or young eyes on it and see, you know, Napoleon Hill's wisdom. She's, she's sitting somewhere in parliament saying like, I'm really trying to help Eric uh, and, you know, he, he, he had me do these notes, but he really needed to process them himself because there's a lot of things in here he still needs to learn. That's a, I should read Remember those a notes. Part of it's like, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, you uh, maybe can help settle a discussion Eric and I have. Because I was I just love. thinking it too, Harry. <laughs> well, listen, uh, he's challenged. I mean, he's follically challenged. You know, he's. What? It's holding his, the heat in his head so he can't think as well. My brain is on fire right now. And, and, and listen, when you were a Marine, the first thing they did is got rid of that hair, right? That's it. That's because it was holding you back. It still is. It Mary is. And I know that. Well, I tried. I don't know if you know this nose right here. I know you're Italian, but the one, one group of people that beats Italians at noses <laughs> is the Jews. And I got it, right? So every time I shave my head, I look like a bald eagle, so I can't do that anymore. <laughs> so it's a logo. I think you should get a picture. It's a logo. Uh, yeah. And it represents freedom, so you might have something there. Anthony. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All so right, Harry. This is the first time, by the way, somebody called me follically challenged on a call where I'm the only guy with hair. Right. <laughs> I love it. Perception. Reverse follically challenged. Yes, I like it. So what, what's the question, Eric, you were going to ask? Because I'm curious. So the question is, Harry and I are thinking about pursuing, um, you know, growing this lead, sell, grow brand and going after uh, certain types of businesses. And one of the things that Harry is saying is, hey, let's just start and we'll kind of figure it out on the end. And what I'm saying is, Am I on the right track here? Is that yep. what you were talking about? Yeah, pretty, perfect. That was pretty much the question. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, I got yeah. you. Because because you don't have anything up here, it just kind of 
it's coming to me right from your brain. Um, so my whole thing is, no, 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 begin with the end in mind. Let's figure out exactly who we want to help because then how we want to help them will come clearer because we can start asking what problems are they having. So I'm right, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You, what do you say? But you, you, you already know what problems you want to solve. Yes. Yeah. We want to get specific with a certain group of people. We want to become experts in that certain field. Well, there's a couple ways to look at that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with deciding to say, I'm going to specialize in a, a vertical. I would just tell you from a, an opportunity perspective, uh, I would say what you want to be an expert at is solving a certain set of problems. And then the thing that is most interesting to me about sales is people will say something like, well, our business is different. And then I'll say, okay, well, please explain to me how. Well, our clients always ask us for a price reduction and it's really hard to get people on the phone. It's hard for us to get them to make decisions on time. And uh, a lot of times we spend wasting time with people that can't or won't buy at the end and they keep going and I'm like, okay, okay. You're so different. <laughs> you're so different. And, and so you're trying to solve problems that are universal and so i would just tell you if you if you can choose to say like i want to pick a and there's every reason to do this like if, if you have an industry that you came out of and you're an industry expert exploit that no no problem that doesn't there's no reason not to but you may find out that the solution that you have serves a lot more people than you think it does and so i i tend to think about how do you solve problems that are difficult for sure but but lend themselves to the kind of solutions that you want to help people with and and see what that looks like so i don't know that there's a right or wrong answer here you I'm can really certainly specialize and then if you find out there's a whole bunch of other people that say like i've got that same problem can you help me we'll pay I'm you loving and, this. and you go like well, they're going to pay us and they have the problem that we already solve i don't know if, if you if you help people that can now send their kids to college because of what you taught them. That's still pretty good. Right. I mean, they're well, like, absolutely. if, if it's just where you start the conversation and we're, we're where we started the conversation, it depends on what you think selling is. Yeah. If you think selling is something that somebody does to someone to take advantage of them and to harm them in some way, then you don't really understand what sales is. And there are people who will teach people how to do that. I mean, mm -hmm. there are, there are people who would teach people to be, self-oriented and aggressive in, in negative ways. But if, if you're helping people to help other people, I mean, I don't know, other than sales, like we go out and help people get, turn their whole business around. Absolutely. I mean, what, I don't know what people think we do. Well, I do know what they think we do. They well, think they it's think uh, bastards. Is what Glenn, think Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, that's what yeah, they think. Exactly. Or boiler room or something <laughs> like that. Suck. Is it steak knives, the BMW, or you're fired? Right. Right. Cadillac. Yeah. Right. That's it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. The whole idea of selling, to me, I got into it for a certain reason, and I think a lot of people do. And then a lot of people get into it to make money, and then they learn that selling is more than that. 
and then others just never never get it the, the, the but you never, never you on. never get any money in sales without helping somebody yeah like it, it, it only comes you, when they say yes and they feel like they're getting some benefit or else they don't buy from you yeah it's automatic even though people don't necessarily view it that way yeah right? Well, it's funny you say that. I taught at Capital University. I taught a class on personal selling and I would ask all the students to describe salespeople to me and it would be like smarmy, pushy, mm -hmm. self-oriented, greedy bastards, you know, yeah. money grubbing. And I'd write all these words on the whiteboard for them. And then, and then I would say, uh, raise your hand if one of your parents works in sales. And then the hands would go up. And I would say, okay, just raise your hands if it's your mom. <laughs> and then there'd be like three hands up or four hands up. And I would say, so your mom is a selfie, pushy, self-oriented, money-grubbing bitch, right? And they would go like, <laughs> no, it's my mom. Her, her clients love her. What are you talking about? They talk on the weekends. They, like, they have great relationships. I'm like, no, 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 no. You just told me you know, that they, these things are true it's a stereotype that's just way outlived the accuracy of that stereotype. I mean, mm -hmm. it's been decades since any kind of tactics like that would have been yeah. useful. They're just not useful. So yeah. no one does that. It's very hard to do that now. Do Most people don't even know how to do it. Right. Sorry. Do you remember your first sales book you ever read? I, I don't, I don't know if I remember my first sales book. I know, I know what books had the biggest impact. So I, I know specifically which books. Did you ever read uh, Og Mandino, The yeah, Greatest sure. Salesman in the World? Yeah. That was my first book. I mean, that, my first sales book. I mean, that yeah. was what, I just personified that as much as I could. I don't, I don't think that was the first for me. I think that, I don't think I bumped into that until later. I know the ones that had the impact. So spin selling, um, just the advance and the implications part of that were transformational for me. Yeah. Rackham's uh, follow on book, major account sales strategies, a far better book. And that one, oh, really? that one, uh, after I read that book, I started winning multi-million dollar multi-year deals with no trouble. Like that, that was the book that I was like, I got it. And More uh, so than spin selling you. Oh yeah. 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 The two of them together are useful. Yeah. When so you're I, saying I these, when, when you're talking about these multi-year million dollar account deals, is that staffing or is that somewhere else? Staffing. Okay. Maybe I'm just not, you know, I've never been in the staffing industry. I just thought it's, I guess they sign a, um, you know, exclusive deal with you. They don't go anywhere else. Is that it? Okay. That makes yeah. sense. And for an X amount of people that you're going to bring up. Yeah. Hundreds. Okay. Hundreds of sometimes people. hundreds of people. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. I didn't look at staff. I never looked at staffing that way. Wow. I learned something today. But you know how staffing people are. <laughs> They're so sleazy. <laughs> Smarmy. Smarmy. Swarp, yeah. yeah. That's true. Not like anybody else in sales. Anthony, this has been so awesome. How's your brain now? Are you like back to normal or are you still on fire? I'm uh, my, uh, my appetite for, knowledge is still what it was then it hasn't changed at some point you realize that uh you're mostly ignorant of everything and and so i'm surrounded by books all the time because i don't like to stay i like to be a little bit less dumb from day to day 
if I can do that, that's pretty good. So I, I know a little bit more than I knew, so I can be a little bit more helpful. And so I read all the time so I can find some, some way to have a little bit more knowledge that could be useful. And well, now right. I only wish we scheduled this interview for next Friday because you're going to know so much more next Friday than you know there's, today. There's no doubt. I mean, I, I'm the, the Napoleon book's been good. There's a lot in there. Yeah. He's a great administrator and a great leader. He, he actually, his skill was getting other people to believe that they were fighting for something worth fighting for. And Tell so me that's would, not sales. They would put themselves in harm's way and conquered everybody. So the, there's, but I, I'm not at the part where he has his great fall yet though, either. So I'm at the early part. He's made 28 or Napoleon something. Complex. You do? <laughs> no, did he have a Napoleon complex? <laughs> did, did Napoleon no, no, he, like, none of, none of that stereotype is actually accurate of him. And uh, <laughs> he was a very, very intellectual guy, had a great sense of humor about himself. And uh, oh, that's cool. The, that happened. Yeah, I'm his, less dumb now. Me too. Yeah. Slightly, slightly. <laughs> that less is dumb. something to be less dumb. Yeah. Yeah, but who wrote that book, Napoleon? Like, hey, all those are just <laughs> bad stereotypes, you know? No, it was his enemies that wrote those books about him and uh, and shared things that ended up not being true. Oh. And uh, and they they have a whole bunch of his records. It's not all glamorous. He had uh, Josephine. And the idea that they had this great love affair, she hated him for the first two years they were married and cheated on him immediately. And then to, to kind of, uh, not to get her back, but as much as to protect himself from being harmed by that kind of thing, he started taking mistresses in Egypt. And in his biography that he wrote, his autobiography, he said he had uh, six to seven mistresses well, he paid him out of the French treasury. So we know there's records. There's 21 of them. So oh he, he missed the mark by a little bit. <laughs> Who can but remember them all? He was not like Will Chamberlain. No, not quite there. Awesome. So last, uh, last thing we'll ask you today, Anthony, I promise, is what legacy are you leaving behind? I hope... Um, that my children are uh, what I tried to do um, was make them good, good adult human beings. So that's it. I'll be gone. They'll still be here. So I need them to be good human beings. Sounds like you're an amazing dad. And we want to thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. This was awesome. I love this conversation. Thanks for having me. From here to there, you're going to grow because you've listened to our show. If you like our podcast vibe, don't be a stranger. Hit subscribe. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to join the B2B Sales Secrets Facebook group and we'll see you on the next episode.